0: All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks, Bruce. (laughs) All right, I'm stretching. Hold on. If I have to stretch, it means you guys are in for it now. Hold on, there we go. All right. Today, if you um, don't know, is what we call Pentecost Sunday. And uh, Pentecost, meaning 50, it was a long, uh, so 50 days after Passover, kind of represented like children of Israel being able to flee Egypt 50 days later, being able to worship at the Mount Sinai so they would continue these festivals. So what was amazing, right, is that after Jesus died and rose again and that was around Passover, 50 days later, they had returned to the city and... um, An amazing event happened where the Holy Spirit descended upon the people and the birth of the church happened. So in a sense, this is our birthday. So happy birthday to the church. And um, it was amazing. That's, That's a point of reference as far as historical. So some years we'll give specific messages based on Pentecost we did last year today isn't necessarily based specific on pentecost at all yet the same holy spirit that descended that day with tongues of fire and went and shook the building and was amazing and they were speaking in languages that were unknown to them but people came to town and were like how do they know my language is the same holy spirit that is in you as a follower of jesus Amen. so it's not something you just look on the outside and go that was good. it's in you now so from that point Here we go. Just like the fired-up people. Oh, also, those are uh, Justin and Melody. I don't know if you ever met Justin and Melody. So they're uh, good friends of mine from Reality San Francisco. They have moved to this area a few years ago, started coming to our church. They're like, oh, Pastor Dale's there. So they've been coming here for a while, and we've been trying to encourage them to get involved. They've played a lot in San Francisco. They're here with us. Just if so, if you see them, thank them. But they're also part of our church. They're not just guests. So wherever they are right now, that applause is for you. Uh, Okay, we are in the final week of uh, our Emotional Healthy Relationships series. Yet this is the kinds of things we don't just teach on and then we walk away from. One of the things that I wanted to do during this year, where we're really focused on rebuilding and renewing of our church is to lay out these skills, these uh, important facets that we can kind of return to in different ways over the many years ahead of us, because we often will drift in how we relate to each other, within our marriages, within our friendships, for sure within our church. The thesis of this entire series that I've been reading at the top of the sermon every week is this. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And some of the areas that we have looked at over the past seven weeks or six weeks, and this is the seventh one, are things like this. Stop mind reading and clarify expectations with people. Understanding your family of origin. Looking below the surface of your life listening incarnationally like being involved and being present with the other person and last week live consistently from the truest thing about you which is your union with christ and to me last week really informs everything some of you shared how transformational it was for you some of you shared that you were very confused about what i was trying to say identity is a huge topic especially because the world has grabbed that and placed it in so many ways. But the truest thing about you is that whatever was at the core of your life before, when Jesus comes in, he has replaced it. And now he is at the core, and everything we do in the rest of our lives is to bring him into those spaces. And I would say that all of these inform how we engage or don't engage with today's final topic. Fight like a peacemaker. You're like, finally, we're going to fight. I was going to bring somebody up to, to like emulate a fight. Not like physically, but like I just... You want to come up and argue with me, Anna? Okay, so my daughter's going to come... No, no, really. Because I would not win that one. So I'm going to start with a story from Scripture. Going to get into some things around fighting and peacemaking and the difference of a peacekeeper and a peacemaker and some specifics. Then I'm going to end with a story. The story that I'm going to read you, we talked about this guy in our family of origin talk. Within the family of origin of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, got down to Joseph. We're going to go back to Jacob for a moment. Jacob lived a rough life. He was fighting everybody, deceiving people, running from people. And if you remember, he had been um, a twin. His twin brother was Esau. And he had separated himself from Esau after deceiving him and running from him. I remember growing up hearing this story as if Jacob was like a young man when this all happened. He was um, 77, we think, when he split up from his brother. Spent 20 years developing a new family, and now he is 97 years old, returning back to the beginning of this story. Some of you know the story that Jacob wrestled an angel. He was 97 years old when he wrestled the angel. Just have that as a mindset. He lived to be 137, so maybe he could have lived to be like 200, but the angel took it out of him. Here's our story. He's on his way back. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives. This is a bit of a section, so it's going to be a while. Let me read it from here. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front. That's a rough scene. Esau's coming with 400 men, which Jacob interpreted as an act of war. So what did Jacob do? Let's put the kids and the female servants in the front. He put the female servants and the children in front. Leah and her children next. Rachel... And Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, they are, the children of God, God, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Father, our praise that we gave to you and sang to you of gratitude, may our hearts continue to be in that space. But God, as we also look in the areas of peacemaking versus peacekeeping, of opening our hearts and minds to what you would have us say of even how we disagree. And in this picture, God, of this moment where there's there's just this shocking restoration after so many years of hurt, so many years of deceiving and running, yet you can reconcile all things. May we leave today with hope of the very same for us. In your name, amen. We've all been mentored in some way around conflict. Some of it was taught, some of it was caught, if you will. Some of it comes from your, a lot of it probably comes from your family of origin, of how you grew up and how your family deals with conflict. It could be even a culture of a work environment that's informing how you deal with conflict or how you are in your relationships. Some of you have learned things like this. Keep silent about it and just keep it within you. Some of you have learned, or this is how you practice this, that you feel ashamed that things bother you. You You wish you were tougher. You wish you could let things roll off your back. Some of you shame others that just don't measure up. In most situations, we use these things to attempt to keep the peace instead of truly making peace. As a quick side note, I know when we talk about conflict, I always want to call this out. There are times when you may be caught in tragically violent situations of abuse. Things might be happening within the confines of your home that go beyond just a disagreement. What I'm telling you today is that you need to get help. Allow people to come beside you. That is not an environment you need to endure. Jesus doesn't say just get tougher or just get stronger. He says get real help. If that's the situation you're in, in conflict, that you're actually facing physical abuse or even mental and emotional abuse, please reach out. I would just love to connect and help you get real help with that as we move forward. But we bring these experiences into the different personal layers of our life, our community life, our church life. For example, we may work within even a group at work. Could be a board at the church or a group of friends. And in that group, we all come with different things that inform how we show up, how we engage, how we disagree. We all bring things that informed us to the table. It might kind of look like this visually in our work together, in our relationships. Even as our gatherings in the church, there's all these things that inform us as we show up. And I think it's important to be reminding of that. And within these relationships, we actually do some false peacemaking. With the theory, the absence of, what could be a tough, in absence of what could be a tough conversation, we make sure that things remain peaceful. I just don't want people to get upset or mad, so let's just keep peace. This keeps things securely below the surface of your life. As Caitlin Garrison describes it this way, a peacekeeper desires to maintain peace by avoiding conflict." Here are some samples. You may disagree with the, what I'm saying here, like men. in that situation, I think that's the best way. I'm just giving you some samples, some examples. Kevin is upset about the behavior of his spouse, who constantly comes home late after work. He says nothing to her. Why? because he thinks he's being like Christ by not saying anything. Although he does give her the cold shoulder and a bit of a stink eye. The reality is, is Carl, Kevin, whatever his name is, (laughs) Carl and Kevin is a false peacemaker. Pam disagrees with her co-workers at lunch when they slander her boss. She is afraid to speak up So she goes along. She's thinking, and I don't want to kill the atmosphere by speaking up and disagreeing and defending. Pam is a false peacemaker. Joe goes to dinner with 10 other people. He's in a tight financial spot. He even wondered if he should go, but he went. So he orders only a small salad and a small appetizer because that's all he can afford. Meanwhile, I think you know where I'm going. The nine other people order multiple appetizers, steak, the catch of the day, the best wine, and desserts. And when the bill comes, someone says, let's just divide it up equally because it'll take forever to figure out. A couple other people agree, most everybody else stays quiet. Joe is dying on the inside but won't say anything because he doesn't want to cause waves with others. He is a false peacemaker. Denise loves her parents, and they are both quite critical about how she and her husband are raising their children. Each holiday is filled with tension, even though it is wearing on her and her husband, and it's actually getting in the way of their relationship. Denise doesn't say anything because she doesn't want to hurt her parents' feelings, and she doesn't want to increase the tension. Denise is a false peacemaker. See, in each of these scenarios, the problem exists. That exists is that the true peace will never come through pretending what is wrong is actually right. Let me say that again. True peace will never come when you're pretending what is wrong is actually okay. Okay. Because Era writes this, True peacemakers love God, others and themselves enough to disrupt the peace. You can't have the true peace of Christ's kingdom with lies and pretense. They must be exposed to the light and replaced with truth. This is the mature, loving thing to do. I know this may be fighting against everything you've been doing for years, But just simply staying quiet in all situations while you internally are like, it's just not right. The enemy loves it when you go home churning inside in order to keep others happy. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this amazing statement. It's so clear about this. He says, blessed are the peace, what, makers or keepers? Makers, Blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace, for they will be called the children of God. And leading up to this part of his sermon, Jesus uh, speaks about other characteristics as well. In order for this to happen, he talks about poverty of spirit and meekness and purity of heart. And then after he mentions peacekeeping, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, those who follow me in these things will face persecution. You're like, wait. If I'm obedient to God, why will it get harder? Because people aren't always happy with this. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Garrison continued, a peacemaker is willing to resolve outer and inner turmoil in order to establish peace with others and themselves we catching that. A peacemaker is willing to resolve the outer, which is what's going on, and the inner turmoil in order to establish peace with others and within themselves. Peacemaking often causes waves, which can feel like a storm. But the end result is calm waters, not just on the surface, but deep below the surface of our lives. To be honest, my friends, unresolved conflicts are one of the greatest tensions in a Christian's life, in a church's life. Most of us hate them. We don't know what to do with them. But instead of risking breaking any relationships, we prefer to just ignore the difficult issues, settle for a false peace, hoping that somehow they just will go away. The truth is they don't. They just find a nice resting place to pop up at inopportune times. One of the ways that I think you can identify is how am I doing with this is when we start to lose our patience. When we become impatient, we are now in a conflict with either somebody or something. And when we start to lose our patience, which is just a gauge or a sign, is how is it that we're responding to that? Because that is in itself could be a gauge of how we are implementing Christ at our center informing everything else relationally around us. Do you mind if I give you a football example? Go ahead. Well, that's because you're a football fan. I'm always just conscientious of that. Currently. Well, this is also because but the basketball team I follow is just taking the rest of the year off so they can win again next year. The baseball team I follow is on a, I'm not, I I don't follow maybe who you think I should follow. My team is building a new stadium in Las Vegas right now and is at an epically worst start in the history of baseball. So my mind has gone to the 49ers already. (laughs) There's a series of things that they do. They have what they call OTAs, which is like a practicing, they're practicing now, but they're just in shorts and shirts. They're learning skills, but nobody's hitting each other. The only pressure is, is that are they learning the skills of what they're supposed to do, kind of like we've been doing in this emotional health. Soon in a few months, they'll put on the pads and they'll start hitting each other to see if what they've learned can be played out at least within practice. But the quarterbacks all get a special colored jersey so nobody touches them. They're protected like fine treasure, which they should be. Because that's what I did. But the <laughs> proof in the pudding is when they start to play somebody else in the season, where that guy is no longer held by t- fine treasure, where the actual goal of the other team is to hit that guy with the ball. At that point of conflict, we know whether the time in the shorts, whether the time where he was protected is really real in his life. It's during times of conflict, my friend, is that we, I'm not saying this to shame anyone, but it's during those times of conflict we get to see, am I emotionally healthy with Christ in these moments? When everything is joyful, when everything is right, it's not hard to be nice to each other. I mean, if you can't even be nice to each other when somebody's blessing you, that's a different story. It's not hard, but it's in those moments, do I have the discipline? Has Christ taken so hold of my inside that I can even fight well? You see, the other side of false peacemaking where we just stay quiet is we fight dirty. Things like this, the silent treatment, anger, rage, lecturing, denying, passive-aggressive behavior... Blaming, attacking, just walking away, lying, avoiding, name-calling, using always and never, threatening gestures, spiritual posturing. Let me grab a couple of these. The first one is the silent treatment. Do you know this one? Oh, come on. They're all being silent. you all giving me the silent treatment right now. They're just like. My wife and I, uh, first apartment was really small. Giving the silent treatment to each other was really tough in a small apartment because we had like one room and then another room and if you're giving each other silent treatment you have to walk by and like, excuse me, and you just, I'm not looking at you. Not proud of that, but we often do that. Research has found that people who received the silent treatment experienced a threat to their needs of belonging, self-esteem, control, and meaningful existence. Often this type of behavior reinforces the feeling that someone we care about often wants nothing to do with us. It can feel as though you don't exist. Sometimes the silent treatment happens in person. I mean, you're literally with that other person and you're just like, Sometimes the silent treatment happens over written communication or doesn't happen over written communication. You receive a text and you're like, I saw the text. I'm going to make that person wait for a while because they need to know I'm still mad at them. You don't reply to an email. Now there are times for sure where you just need to go, I need a break. So you go for a while and sit, and so like, I just need to think about this for a while. Man, do that. Encourage that with each other. Sometimes you're just like, I just need some time alone, but come back and engage. I'm not saying you don't do that. But fighting dirty includes, I'm just going to shun you for a while. In so many ways, this is actually narcissistic behavior. Fighting like this will keep people at levels of immaturity because they end up just getting what they want. If I can be silent longer than you can handle, I win. And that elevates me. Sometimes we use the silent treatment because we don't know how to communicate. We are hurt. And I get that. So some of these tools that we've been talking about are actually going to give some words to you expressing like, I'm quiet because I'm hurt. So how do you engage about that? We also use the silent treatment by just pushing away. We just disappear. Sometimes we do this at church. We're like, I'm just going to push away and leave and go somewhere else and tell nobody because I just want to keep the unity and peace. But when you do that, you're actually ripping something apart. Sometimes we do this with friends. Sometimes we do this just to test others. I'm going to be quiet about this and just see if they reach out. It's some kind of weird power trip within that. All of those things are brutal. Those things actually rip apart and are unfair. Another area that I think is just dirty fighting is in Christian community, spiritual power posturing, I will call it. I've seen this in churches. I've seen this with friends. I've seen this with families. I've seen this with generations, from grandmas passing on to their grandkids, from parents to their kids, kids to kids. The first person to say, you know, you've disappointed God, usually has the upper hand. Or things like, and you call yourself a Christian as a way of negating. I'm not going to engage with you. I'm just going to randomly send you Bible verses to reveal to you how wrong you really are. <laughs> it could be sending some verses about your behavior, or we say things like, hmm, the Jesus and I know wouldn't do that. Or I expected more out of you. You do go to church, don't you? Jokingly, sometimes people say to me, Oh, Pastor Dale. And I say, Oh, congregant whoever. We do this unknowingly, too. We think we're doing it to draw people closer to God. One of the conversations I have a lot with parents is they're like, I don't want to force Christianity on my kids so I don't make them come to church. I would say the greater damage of forcing Christianity on on your kids is leveraging him to make a point. Bringing your kids to church doesn't force anything, but it's when you leverage God to make your point is where the real damage can happen. Sometimes this happens within leadership structures. When leaders focus on their own authority, constantly reminding others of who they are or what they have done in order to justify their respect and awe they need would be spiritual posturing of abuse. They cannot live up to their own rules, and neither can their family, friends, or church, so it's imperative they just hide their reality. You can probably think of so many other things when real peacemaking is swapped for simple, harmful peacekeeping. Some deep, hurtful patterns can develop. Let me get real practical for a few moments, and then I'll get back to Jacob, what we read about. Lisa and I, when we were first married, and she does know I'm going to talk about this, when we were first married, now we've been married a few years, we didn't have a lot of the skills of how to engage. A lot of people don't. So the scenario was this, and I'm going to lead us through some practical things that I would say here is healthy disagreement patterns of how you actually fight like a peacemaker. So this isn't exactly how it played out, but this is how it would have played out if we had these skills. (laughs) So being in ministry and I work on Sundays, yes, I know some of you think I only work on Sundays, but because I work on Sundays, I get a day off during the week, Monday or through Friday. One, but All the years has been different days. My wife is a kindergarten teacher. She works Monday through Friday. So one of those days I was home, and the issue came about that when I was home, I did whatever I wanted to do, and she came home, the kitchen looked like I had no idea somebody else lived there with me. I just left everything there in the kitchen and I she would come home and there wasn't a super positive response or feeling in her. After a long time, we brought this up. Here is how it should have played out. First step is this. Ask for permission to start a conversation or conflict and then say this. I notice It is so important to start, my friends, is this a good time to bring something up? Sometimes we go full speed into conflict and it just gets derailed right away. Is this a good time to bring something up? So have some common sense around this. Late at night is probably not a good time. I clarified some things about me. The version of Dale after 10 o'clock is not a good one. It then became after 9 o'clock, currently it's about 6.30 but even being, com, being committed to verbally agree that this is a good time would make a major difference. Quickly, don't do this over email. Hey, we need to talk. See somebody, hey, tonight, can we talk? And you're like, all day long, you're like, about what? What's going on, this and that? As much as you can in person, is this a good time to bring a, this? I need to talk to you. So start with I notice. Lisa started this way. I noticed that when I got home, get home from work on your day off, the kitchen is in a condition where it looks like you didn't know we needed to start getting dinner ready or that anybody else lived here besides you. Continuing, state why this is important to you, what you value. Lisa would have continued, I value coming home to a kitchen and house that is clean, at least how it looked when I left this morning. This is so it's ready for the next thing we need to do. Dale, I want you to do whatever you want to do on your day off. I just value being able to walk in from a chaotic day to a place of order. Third, fill in the following sentence. When you do this, I feel, Lisa would have continued, when you do this, I feel like you don't think of what I've gone through through during the day. I don't feel valued and that you aren't helping make our home a place of rest or peace for both of us. Dale, I value cleanliness. Fourth, state your request clearly. I would like you to, so Dale, I would like you to do whatever you want to do on your day off to get the rest and enjoyment you need. I would also like for the kitchen to be clean so when I come home, I'm entering into an inviting space. Then on my part, the listener, consider the requests and share your feelings in response. I wish at this point I responded like this. Because I'm sure there was all sorts of, it's not a big deal, I'll clean it up, I was just about to get to it, Da-da, yada, 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 yada. But you should say that if I was willing to do all of it, some of it or none of it. So even though at first it was just, I'll do some of it, I needed to realize I actually need to give life to my wife. What actually gave my relationship power was I responded to what she just desired. At the end, agree to the request or offer an alternative. I said, I'll commit to having the place clean. Now I know. And I have for 30 years. She went away for the weekend to visit her uncle on her 90th birthday. It was amazing how fast the kitchen got dirty. But I'm like, I got two days to clean. I cleaned it that night because I even felt bad going to bed with a, with a dirty kitchen. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Even in your marriages now, relationships, write your agreement and set a date to address how it's going in a few weeks. Hey, I'm committing to do this. I understand this is what you value. Even if I don't see it the same, I'm going to go on the same page and readdress it in a couple of weeks and say, how are we doing? That is so important. It's just getting on the same page. That's fighting like a peace maker. You may think, Dale, that is way too much work. I have to go like, through a list of things on my piece of paper to do this? I understand. And this one, above all, seems to be reveal our state of emotional healthy relationships. Am I engaging for my unity with Christ? Am I listening well? Am I creating stories in my head? But I think if Jacob could do it, I think we can do it too. If we go back to this guy, Jacob, just for a few moments, if you know his story, he had wronged his brother. He had wronged his uncle. He had fought and ran and been to so many places. And yet, even when he was running, God says, Jacob, I'm going to bless you. There's going to be a huge amount of generations that come after you. And I'm asking you to go back. So even in the midst of that, Jacob does what he always does. He develops a plan to get his way or out of a situation. So he sends people forward to Esau, his brother, that he had left 20 years before. And they said, they came back and said, Esau's coming with 400 men. Everything in Jacob is like, what is going on? So he cries out to God and says this. Then Jacob prayed, O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff and I crossed this Jordan, but now I have Become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Jacob is distressed. He's like, God, you promised me I'm coming back. And now he's telling himself stories. Esau's coming to destroy me. And it may seem not like it, but God has Jacob right where he finally needs him. God meets Jacob in a way, in a physical fight, because that's what Jacob knew. Hosea tells us that he wrestled an angel all night long. God says to Jacob, you want to fight? I'll fight you. So he fights him. God loved Jacob enough, I'm going to meet you right where you are, and we're going to wrestle all night long. Jacob knew what fighting looked like. He even fought with his brother before they were even born. It says the babies jostled with each other within her as their mother was pregnant. That's all he knew. He deceived others. He fought others. and he's meeting, God is meeting him in the midst of his dysfunction. What Jacob didn't need was a win or even experience a loss. Jacob needed an identity change. That's what we all need, an identity change. From the name Deceiver, he was given the name that represented all of God's people. Change not just for his own relationship for the future. Fighting like a peacemaker is to bring real peace to all involved, not just you. God says to Jacob, I'm going to change who you are, after 97 years. My friends, the enemy is going to tell you it doesn't work. It's going to say, like, if you try to do these things and the other person is just going to sh- whatever the enemy is telling you. But God's like, no, go back. I'm with you. It can be different. You're not the same person. Let me change you from the inside. J.P. Letterock wrote this. The call Jacob received was to turn towards all that he feared and walk back to his brother, not knowing what could happen. And the promise of God was not that all would be fine or that all would be taken care of well ahead of his arrival. The promise was simple. I will be with you. Ultimately, reconciliation is a journey toward and through conflict. In this instance, God does not promise to do the work for Jacob. God does not promise that he will take care of everything and level the road for Jacob. God just promises to accompany him, to be present. We will find God present throughout the journey toward reconciliation in the depths of fear, in the hopelessness of the dark nights, in the tears of reconnection. The pathway through conflict towards reconciliation is filled with God encounters. If we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to feel, conflict opens a path, a holy path, towards revelation and reconciliation. If you're waiting for it to be like God said this is going to be easy, that's not what God said. God just says, I'll be with you. So don't back off. Two things as we close. One, God doesn't just name our stuff. He names us. He doesn't just say, this is who you are. He said, this is your new name. You are a child of God. You are my child. I am in you, and you are in me. Just like we talked about last week, live in that place and bring that place to everything that you have. Secondly, and finally is this, is that how we go through conflict with others reveals all of our emotional health and spiritual maturity. It does. It doesn't mean you're a failure if you don't do well. It just reveals there's more that God wants to work on with you. My hope is that when you go through conflict with somebody and it didn't go well, you can pause and go, man, I want to do that again. <laughs> Here are some ways we can do that a little better as opposed to building cases against each other. Let's pray. Father, we sit before you this morning. And I encourage you, family and friends, to sit with God. And what has the Spirit been telling you? Some of you are in conflict with something, and you have bitterness towards that. It could be a person. It could be a thing. It could be a place. It could be how something is done. And God wants to replace that with gratitude this morning. You may be in conflict with somebody and God's calling you to say, go back, I'll be with you. God calls us to be peacemakers, not just keeping the peace by being quiet while you die on the inside. God's pressing on my heart that there are people here this morning that are just dying on the inside and they've been hurting for years, thinking they're doing what God, what you wanted them to do by just keeping it inside. They should be strong enough and just relying on you. And if they start to feel bad, it's because they're not relying on you. When the whole time you're saying, No, let's go, let's make things right. If that's you this morning, You've just been holding it in, and inwardly, you're just crumbling. Step one is like, God, I give this to you. Journey with me. God's like, let's do it together. Jesus came and died, he gave his life for peace making. Jesus didn't just keep the peace. He didn't walk around just being quiet. He uprooted things. So actually being a follower of Jesus is someone who's willing to uproot things for the purpose of peace in the situations. Day one, we said the mark of spiritual maturity is a level of ability to love others. That's the mark. So I want us to read this from 1 John together as we close and head out. Read this with me, if you will. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God bless you. Have an amazing, amazing week. I sit right over here if you want to connect after service. God bless